Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Our, our tradition is to just say our first or first and last name as we go around and then I'll introduce our speaker. Uh, my name is Joe Good. I'm Jack. My name is Mark. I'm Michael. I'm Mark. <coughs> my name is Tom Brewer. <coughs> I'm Bob. My name is Tage. I'm Miss Wally. My name is Michael. My name is Dal. Jeff. Hello. Joe. Cat. Juan. Katie. Jim. My name is Cass. John. My name is Peter. Harley. I'm Wally. My name is Michael. I'm Len. <laughs> My name is Gary. My name is Henry from Benowitz. My name is Evan. My name is Clint. Yeah. I'm Sean McCoolin. I'm Hal. I'm Ray Dyer. I'm Eddie. Dan. Anybody here for the first or second time? Second. Um, just say your names one more time. Yeah. Juan. Yeah. Well. Those of you who are regulars, please try to make our newcomers feel welcome during this social time. Um, our speaker today, just one somebody else. Just tell us your name as you're creeping in. Jose. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, John Coleman is our speaker today. He is a Jesuit priest, an associate pastor at St. Ignatius Church in San Francisco. He holds a doctorate in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, where he specialized in the sociology of religion. As a Jesuit, he is naturally interested in spirituality and its practices. Welcome. And you might want to pass out. I brought a handout which will help you follow what I'm going to say, and perhaps you may want to save it afterwards. So if you could pass those out to people. And while that's coming, uh, I was asked, uh, by the way, I've known Ray for 27 years, Ray Dyer, so I presume that's how this invitation came this way. Um, I was asked to talk about Thomas Merton and his dialogue with Buddhism. And uh, first a thing about Merton, and then uh, I will try to talk about why he was interested in in deeply influenced in uh, Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism. Um, Merton was born in France uh, in 1915. Uh, his mother was an American Quaker, and his father was from New Zealand, who was an artist. Uh, the mother died when he was uh, barely six years old. She died of cancer. And his father died when he was roughly 16 years old. 
Uh, for a while after his mother died and later in life, too, he, he lived in... I had 40 of them, so I don't know whether there's enough to go around. I don't know how many there were, but there were 40. Um, he lived with grandparents in Long Island, his mother's parents, and then that's how he returned to the United States. Uh, he first lived there with his brother, who died tragically young in an air accident, uh, his younger brother, John Paul. Uh, and then the father got him again and brought him back to Europe and he went to England so he studied in England in a prep school and then at Cambridge his father was dead when he went to Cambridge but there was money to take care of him and the father's lawyer took care of him. He spent several years at Cambridge and students who were there when he was there said he was quite a womanizer and probably drank a lot he was young uh, we know that he was more than just a womanizer, but he conceived a child uh, who was born, uh, but he never married the woman. And because of that, it was thought better to get him out of England. Uh, so he went back to the United States and went to Columbia University, uh, where he early on had some interest in uh, Eastern religion. He was deeply influenced by Aldous Huxley's book uh, Ends in Means about uh, Eastern religion. And at one point while he was at Columbia, he was a student of Mark Van Doren and therefore the writer and uh, literary figure. He got a BA and a master's in literature and in, in Columbia and became fast friends with several poets like Robert Lax and others who were friends for life. And Merton was, of course, he was a poet. Uh, he has many books of poetry. I say he's a social activist. Well, not that he got took to the streets, but he wrote a book in the 60s, Confessions of a Guilty Bystander. And it was about the civil rights movement and about Vietnam. He was nonviolent, held for a nonviolent position in his life. And during that period, he became uh, he became he, he came in contact, particularly in terms of the Vietnamese thing, with the uh, with with a Vietnamese famous monk. And I'm trying to remember his name. It's uh, yes, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a very well known Buddhist monk. And so they dialogued about nonviolence. He was a mystic, uh, and indeed had at least two famous mystic experiences, uh, one of which was connected with Buddhism toward the end of his life. Uh, at one point in his life, well, mysticism is a strong word, but at one point in his life, when he was a monk, he went to a hospital in Louisville or to see a doctor. And he was in the middle of downtown Louisville and had this, whatever word you want to use, transcendent experience of his connectedness with everybody he saw around him, that they were all one. It was a, obviously a very powerful experience uh, for him. And of course he was a writer on contemplation, on meditation, on prayer, and he was interested in it. Um, he was converted to Catholicism uh, while at Columbia in 1938, and he joined the Cistercian Order in 1942. Now, those of you, may, you may or may not know what a Cistercian is. Trappists, they're sometimes called Trappists. Uh, there's a Trappist monastery in Vina, California, and there's a, I've been there once or twice, but 
I, I prefer to go to the Trappistines, the Lady Trappists in, uh, in Humboldt, at Our Lady of the Redwoods. The Trappists are a, a, a reformed movement connected with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, among others, of the Benedictines. And unlike the Benedictines, they're, they're, they don't run schools generally, although they have in the past. My father grew up next to a Trappist monastery in Ireland, Mount Melry, and in the days when he was there and for some time afterwards, they ran a school. But generally, they, they keep a greater silence than the Benedictines, even though they had the same tradition of ora et labora, pray and work. They keep a greater silence. Often they use sign language in times when they do not have uh, conversation with one another. Uh, and like most of the Benedictines, besides private contemplation, meditation, prayer, they engage five or so times a day in chanting the office, which is based largely on the psalms, sung. Uh, when I've gone to monasteries uh, what for my retreats, uh, what determines whether I'll go back is how well they sing. <laughs> the Trappistines sing better than the monks up there. <laughs> uh, so in, in 1948, now remember, he's, he's then 31 years old. He's been ordained a priest. He wrote a story of his conversion at Columbia. Uh, it was called the Seven Story Mountain, and much to everybody's surprise, this became a stunning bestseller. And I'm not sure, but I think even his picture got on time because everybody was reading it. Uh, it's an autobiography, uh, doctored in some places because uh, evidently the monk censors didn't want him to include it. It's vaguely in the book, but didn't want him to include that he had sired a child in England out of wedlock. Uh, but it's often important to remember, think of most of us are older than 31, if you wrote your autobiography at 31, it might be very interesting, it might be very deep, it might be very spiritual, as his was. Remember, he, he's, a, he's a poet, he has a poet's soul. Uh, but you'd rather see the autobiography at 60 or whatever. Uh, some of his best-known books uh, in, in the Trappists, uh, he uh, held some positions. Uh, he was known as Father Lewis, was his name in the Trappists. Uh, he held some positions of teaching young, forming young new Trappist monks. He was the novice director for them. And he therefore studied deeply in the Christian sources of, and monastic sources, people like John Cashin and, and uh, others, about contemplative prayer. He did a lot of a study of the early monks of the desert. I don't know whether you know the monks of the desert, but somewhere in the third or fourth century, right after um, the Roman Empire stopped persecuting Christians, a whole number of people in Egypt and elsewhere removed themselves from cities and they lived as hermits. Uh, but people would come out to them for spiritual advice. In that sense, they were renunciators of what they thought was a worldliness in the world, but 
lots of people in that world saw a value in what they were doing. Uh, so he, he wrote uh, Seeds of Contemplation, The Waters of Silhouette, The Sign of Jonas, and Contemplative Prayer. When he was in Colombia, before he was converted, he met, a, he met a Hindu monk. And by the way, besides his dialogue with Buddhists, which is probably the strongest stream of his dialogue, he also had dialogue with Hindu monks, Hindu mystics, as well as with Sufis, because he was interested in whatever would lead to a form of mysticism, a self-transcendence, a going beyond subject and object. So he met this monk whose name was Brahmakari, and he asked the Hindu monk, well, what should I do? He was beginning to have a stirring toward spirituality, I, I suppose we could say. This is before he was converted to Catholicism. <laughs> and uh, the monk said, don't read our stuff. Go to the stuff in your own tradition. It's rich enough. Find the wealth there. Read Augustine. Read the imitation of Christ. Also, very early on, Gandhi was a deep influence on, uh, on uh, Merton. Uh, he actually wrote a, a, a preface to the translation and helped translate uh, uh, something Gandhi had written. And he was taken by the fact that although Gandhi was a Hindu and never ceased to be one, much of his own religious life was influenced by the Sermon on the Mount from Christianity, that he could somehow be an authentic Hindu and find a second home, in a sense, in another tradition besides his own. Uh, so I, I, I mentioned here some of the sources on Merton and Buddhism, and I, I was, uh, my own experience with Buddhism is, is not large. I've spent a month once in Japan, and I certainly spent time in Buddhist monasteries and meditated there. Uh, I've been to Thailand a couple of times and to Cambodia, and I've been to Buddhist monasteries there and temples. But I spent actually five years ago a semester teaching in Taiwan, and uh, so I went to a lot of Buddhist temples there. Uh, the first book I mention is called Encounter, Thomas Merton and D.J. Tsukuki. Now, you may know who D.J. Uh, Tsukuki is, but he's, he's probably the most important conveyor of Buddhism, and particularly Zen Buddhism in the post-war period, into the United States. He was a friend of Tillich and others. And Merton took the initiative and wrote to Suzuki in 1959. He had already been reading books about and trying to practice forms of, uh, equivalent forms of Buddhist meditation. Uh, he, and he said the following, I have my own way to walk, and for some reason Zen is right in the middle of wherever I go. If I could not breathe Zen, I would probably die of asphyxiation. And actually I don't include the rest of the quote, but then he goes on to say, well, you know, Zen, I'm not sure I know how to define Zen, but later... In one of his books, he said, well, quoting Dogen, the great Zen master, uh, anybody who defines Zen or gives a structure to it has betrayed it. But anyway, Merton said, I don't know how to define it, but I don't know how to define air either, but it's what I breathe. And uh, so there was a long correspondence between Suzuki and Merton, and Merton sent some of his writings to Suzuki, particularly writings about Fathers of the Desert, 
and vice versa. And eventually, in one of his books, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, there's a kind of a dialogue between the two of them. Uh, and in his correspondence, and he finally met Suzuki uh, in, I think it was 1966. Merton, he, he was able to, Suzuki came to the United States, and Merton got permission to leave his monastery in Kentucky and uh, go, go up to New York and meet uh, Suzuki. And Merton, in his writings that he sent to Suzuki, compares Zen masters and the Desert Fathers. Uh, you know how in Zen there's koans, you know, what is the voice of, you know, emptiness or whatever. But the Fathers of the Desert, you know, these hermits, and yet there would be kind of like teachers among them, roshis of sorts, would give often the hermit something equivalent to a koan, go out and water a dry stick till it <coughs> grows or whatever, and they'd have to figure out what the world that was. The great humor that one finds both in Zen and in the Fathers of the Desert, and the equivalent em em emphasis on emptiness, the emptying oneself. The, the Greek word is kenosis, to empty yourself, and actually the Christian understanding is that God emptied himself in Jesus, and Jesus emptied himself, becoming just like us. So Merton, uh, also in his writing to Suzuki, refers to analogy in Aquinas, where he says that uh, because we know being the way we know it, to claim that God is a being is as misleading as anything, so one can as much claim that he is non-being, at least non-being as we know it, as to say that he's being. He also quotes John Roycebrook, who is one of my great favorite Christian mystics uh, from Belgium. I've lived in Belgium. Uh, and Roycebrook was a, somewhat of a contemporary and a disciple of Meister Eichhardt, again, somebody in the Buddhist-Christian dialogue that both Suzuki and uh, Merton found congenial. Uh, on transcending the subject-object distinction. So Merton wrote a book, this is number B here, Mystics and Zen Masters, in which he argues, and, and really his interest in Buddhism was less a kind of a doctrinal thing. He was less interested in that. He was more interested in practice. And he thought that he as a monk and other monks, Western Christian monks, could learn from the meditative practices of, uh, of Zen. Uh, but he did see some parallels. So, by the way, another parallel in what he wrote about the Desert Fathers, you may or may not know, but the earliest Christian prayer, which is called the Hezekiah Prayer, the Jesus Prayer, you just say the word over and over and over again. But it's connected with a form of meditation which is very like some forms of Buddhist meditation the breathing in and breathing out. The breathing in. So, in a way, the name Jesus, the mantra, gets lost in the kind of breathing in, breathing out. And actually, the Greek word Hezekiah means uh, breath. Uh, but Mer so, Merton in uh, Mystics and Zen Masters does not think that Zen is incompatible with Christianity. Uh, he once quotes, uh, I think he quotes in this book, Suzuki saying, you know, Buddhism does not affirm that there is a God. But it doesn't deny it either. And so 
uh, for uh, Merton, Zen is not a theoretical but an existential set of practices. And in that book, he expands on We Neng, a Buddhist of the, I think, 10th century in China, uh, with the emphasis on emptiness and moving beyond subject and object. And he thought that some Christian mystics approach the same thing. You know, uh, in a way, empty, it's emptiness, but in some sense, sometimes in that emptiness, some of the Zen masters talk about like a pure light. And he uh, cites uh, John of the Cross, the great uh, uh, Carmelite Christian mystic, Todo inada, everything and nothing at once. Pure abandonment, darkness and night, pure void. So the emptiness, but yet a kind of pure light. He also saw something similar to Buddhism in the mystic Jacob Bene. God is calling the seeing and finding of the God is called the seeing and finding of of the nothing, and therefore is called a nothing, because it's inconceivable and inexpressible. And he says of the koan, that it leads a monk to experience, not to figure out the riddle, that's a waste of time, but to experience himself as a riddle without an answer. And that's, of course, the way koan... Another book he wrote, which was published the year of his death, Zen and the Birds of Appetites, he says, I believe that Zen has much to say not only to a Christian, but to a modern man. It is non-doctrinal, concrete, direct, existential, and seeks above all to come to grips with life, not with ideas about life. And again, in that extraordinary book, he says the following, both Christianity and Buddhism show that suffering remains inexplicable. Of course, that's the start of Buddhism. I mean, the, the, there's suffering and its experience and what are the causes of it and how do you transcend it. Most of all to the man, it remains inexplicable, most of all to the man who attempts to explain it in order to evade it or who thinks explanation itself is an escape. Suffering is not a problem as if it were something we could stand outside of and control. This is Merton. Suffering, as both Christianity and Buddhism see, each in its own way, is part of our very ego identity and empirical existence. And the only thing to do about it is to plunge right into the middle of the contradiction and confusion in order to be transformed by what Zen calls the great death and Christianity calls dying and rising with Christ. And in this book, there's a dialogue with Suzuki and Suzuki was quite taken by Meister Eckhart, and particularly the remark of Eckhart, the eye wherein I see God is the same eye wherein God sees me. Not long before he died, uh, Merton had a conversation with another uh, writer on Christian contemplative prayer, Brother David Steindl Ross, where he said, I do not believe that I could understand my Christian faith the way I understand it if it were not for the light of Buddhism. And then the final source uh, from Merton on, so he wrote Zen Masters and Mystics, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, he had this correspondence with Suzuki, uh, is the journal he kept, 
1968. Uh, he finally got permission to go, well, there was a big meeting in Bangkok, which is a meeting really of Christian monks in Asia. But he also got permission for a more extended stay in Asia and to give a talk in Calcutta at an inter-religious dialogue between Buddhists and Hindus and Christians, okay. Uh, roughly speaking, from October 15th to December 15th. Uh, he spent some time here in California before he, he went to Asia. He spent some time up in, with the Trappists, but also much more congenially with the Trappistines, and he was looking for the possibility of a hermitage. Uh, during, uh, uh, in his own uh, journey in Gethsemane, uh, he got permission to live a hermit's existence. Now, most Cistercian monks, you know, although they have silence and they have spent a lot of time in a, a personal prayer, they do have a communal existence. They are not hermits. Uh, he didn't do his liturgies alone in the hermitage, so he would come out of the hermitage. But this was a long time as a hermit uh, in prayer and alone. Uh, so anyway, he got permission to go to Asia, and he met, uh, he spent time in Bangkok at the Buddhist monastery there. Uh, in Calcutta, he met Chogem Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist. And although his earlier uh, connection was largely with uh, Zen Buddhists, uh, on this Asian journey, he had connections with Theravada Buddhism uh, in Thailand and Sri Lanka, and with Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Rinpoche, and then he went to the Himalayas, and for three successive days, for several hours each day, he and the Dalai Lama met and uh, talked, and uh, the Dalai Lama said of him that he thought that uh, Merton might be a Christian geisha, geisha, guru, or roshi, or whatever. But later he said something uh, which is quite remarkable. He said, you know, I never took seriously at all Western Christian monasticism, contemplation, or meditation. But I had to rethink it after I met Merton. Uh, and he, he went to Sri Lanka, and there he had the only other kind of a mystic experience like that one at Fourth and Market in Louisville, where he felt this that he was, you know, one with everybody. He ha he went to this Buddhist monastery in Sri Lanka, which had many such Buddhas around. And again, he had something like a, uh, like 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 a mystical experience. In the, the talk he gave at the interreligious dialogue in Calcutta, he said the following, I come as a pilgrim who is anxious to obtain not just information, not just facts about other monastic traditions, but to drink from ancient sources of monastic vision and experience. I seek not to just learn more quantitatively about religion. He's not just doing comparative religious studies or sociology of religion but he really wants to enter deeply into a dialogue as a pilgrim and to learn, but to become better and, a better and more enlightened monk qualitatively myself. In the Asian journal, he is not looking for a facile syncretism, 
and he does think that there should be scrupulous respect for important differences. But what is sought is true self-transcendence and enlightenment. Mindfulness. The Christian monks used a different term, presence of God. My own founder of the Jesuits, finding God in all things. But you need to be mindful all the time and everywhere to do that. And compassion, which of course uh, is something that uh, Buddhism and Christianity would... Uh, and some kind of bhakti-type devotion, care for those who are not there. Now, he had a very significant dream while he was in Asia. He imagined himself back in Gethsemane. But there he was, dressed not as a Trappist monk, but as a Zen Buddhist monk. And he meets all sorts of people. And they look at him a little puzzled. And he said, no, I'm both. This is a significant dream. Now, another helpful source I found inspired more by Merton than Merton himself in this dialogue with Buddhism. So it's not a syncretism thing. It's not trying to find, oh, what do we have just in common so we have a least common denominator. It's really a dialogue so that we can learn even from differences. Uh, and, and, and not, okay. But... It, 20 years after he died, there was a very interesting gathering, much provoked by the Dalai Lama, in Gethsemane, where 50 mainly uh, um, either Benedictine or Cistercian nuns and monks, and Buddhist monks, but Buddhists uh, and some Buddhist lay people, but Buddhists of every tradition, so Theravada, Zen, and, and Tibetan, came together. And uh, they talked about the role of the teacher. They talked about compassion. There's some interesting conversations. For example, anger is bad in Buddhism. And it's bad, and actually it's one of the capital sins in Christianity. But Christianity allows something like a righteous anger about justice. And so there was some debate about those things as there was about human rights. Some Buddhists don't like the word human rights. Not that they don't accept the reality, but they think the word is intrinsically adversarial. Anyway, it's an interesting dialogue. But one Buddhist cited Merton uh, at his talk in Calcutta during this. It's worth reading that uh, encounter, and, and there's a lot of stuff in there by the Dalai Lama. Here's what he cited from Merton. At the center of our being... It's a point of nothingness which is untouched by sin and by illusion. A point of pure truth. A point or spark which belongs entirely to God which is never at our disposal from which God disposes of our lives which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own world. And another Buddhist at that conference cited Merton when he said, I think that we have now reached a stage of religious maturity at which it may be possible for someone to remain perfectly faithful to a Christian or Western monastic commitment. Even so he, he felt he'd be asphyxiated if he couldn't be Zen, but it didn't mean he was ceasing to be Christian. He wanted to be both. 
faithful to that and yet learn in depth from a Hindu or Buddhist discipline or experience. Some of us need to do this in order to improve the quality of our own monastic life. Then I end with a reference to a dear friend of mine who's probably more than that, is the most important scholar of Christian Buddhist dialogue in the United States. His name is James Fredericks. We taught together at Loyola Marymount University. I'll have lunch with him in two weeks, actually. He's up in Sonoma. Uh, but anyway, he has, he, there's a new book on Catholicism and interreligious dialogue, and he has an interesting chapter on Buddhism and that dialogue, and then two respondents uh, to him. Uh, one last thing. At that conference, two things that I remember from the conference held at Gethsemane that the Dalai Lama said that I thought, I thought was interesting. Anyway. On the one hand, he said, you know, here we are, so Theravada, Tibetan, Zen Buddhists together here in Gethsemane. And it's more likely that we will talk to these Christian monastic people about contemplation, meditation, emptiness, going beyond subject-object distinction. Then we talk to one another. We really need more dialogue between our own three traditions. I'm just quoting him. The other thing he said that I thought was interesting, he said, you know, Merton was insistent that he thought that the Christian monasticism could learn from Buddhism. He said, but I think we can learn some things also from Christian monasticism. And that is some strength in the meaning of bhakti and particularly how many of the monastic people started hospitals, schools, soup kitchens. I mean, I'm just quoting the Dalai Lama. Anyway, I hope this is helpful. You may have questions or comments or objections, and that's okay. We have a little bit of time left. Yes. Yeah. Those are my remarks. Open it up for questions? Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam War and um, Merton and others mentioned prominent Christians taking a stand against it in a very passionate way. Yes, yes. Daniel Berrigan, for example, the Jesuit. I just want to, maybe this doesn't pertain to what you're talking about, I just want to, what happened? What happened to Christianity in America that has taken this hard by turn and has become so dogmatic and hateful? Because it wasn't always like that. No, it was not, nor is it entirely now either. I mean, recently we had that wonderful thing of nuns on the bus. Right. But, but they were being highly criticized. Well, I know, I know, I know, I know. As you know, the sociology of religion person in me will answer this. It's a shameful thing, but if you look uh, carefully, uh, at data about religious data for the United States, the largest growing group are people who are who say they are non-religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are spiritual but not religious, but they can't take the word Christian. Uh, I, I, I'm always happy that those people who call themselves Christians, like Michelle Bachman and whatever, who I don't like and who don't seem very Christian to me at all, uh, they don't think I am either because Catholics aren't part of their 
thing. But you have a good question. I don't. It's not that that's not still alive, but it doesn't drive in, in, in either Catholicism or mainline Protestantism. Again, there was a kind of a social gospel element, but of course, Protestantism shifted from mainline Protestant to evangelical Protestants. We don't want to be overly um, dogmatic here because Jim Wallace, who's somebody I admire, there are evangelical Protestants who are socially engaged or against war, etc. But thank you for your question. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to um, suggest this, but I just wanted to confirm the fact that the Cistercians are still very involved in uh, uh, cross-cultural dialogue. And as a matter of fact, I had the great privilege about five or six months ago as the, the abbot at, uh, in Vina asked me if I would go to Catholic churches in the San Francisco area and help them fundraise because, of course, assertions uh, live in poverty. They yeah. don't, have, they don't yeah. have resources to right. pay to do that type of thing. And uh, I got to go around and talk to a number of churches about uh, the need for what it's the Alliance of International Monastical Organizations. Yes, yes. But in Asia, it's specifically directed towards inter-religious dialogue. I was a little blown away because I knew Merton had done this in the 60s. Yeah. I was unaware that that tradition had been maintained. Well, because, of course, Asian Christians are more interesting in some ways because they know... They know that tradition. They know that they, that, you know, they don't come out of Christendom at all, you know. There's a Jesuit uh, in Sri Lanka who I deeply admire. His name is Alois Peris, and did that kind of liberation theology for, you know, in, and, and, and um, you know, there's these two groups, one Buddhist, one Hindu, and they opted in his community, if you were of the Indian, more Hindu background, you opted for the Buddhist and vice versa as a way of... But, but instead of basic Christian communities, uh, there they talk about basic human communities because, yeah. yeah. So this isn't a luxury. I mean, uh, both Merton and the Dalai Lama would say that world peace and justice will depend on the a genuine dialogue. Uh, in my parish, I'm in charge of uh, what we call adult faith formation. So three Sundays a week, we get three Sundays a month, rather, we get speakers in, and I want to make sure that it includes spirituality and includes social justice, but also ecumenism. So this past spring, um, Sister Marianne Donovan, who taught at the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. Uh, and has been active in the Buddhist-Christian dialogue, came and talked about that. And I had um, um, uh, somebody from actually the head of Harvard uh, Center for World Religions is a Jesuit, uh, and he came and talked about the dialogue between Hinduism and Christianity and whatever. Yes? What, what was Thomas Merton's um, dialogue with or stance on uh, evangelical Christian. He, he probably didn't have much. <laughs> well, first of all, um, remember he died in 1968. And so the kind of, again, sociologically, it's not that evangelical Christianity didn't exist. But it, it you know, after, uh, a, after um, um, the, the, that, that 
evolution thing in the 20s in Tennessee, they withdrew from the world. So their kind of emergence in a big way wasn't so, wouldn't have been so big. But again, you know, there, there, there's some evangelicals who have prosperity gospel, whatever. I don't even think it's, they may call themselves Christian. I don't think it's worthy of Christians, you know. But, uh, but, but one has to be careful there because there are really interesting evangelicals too who, who have an intellectual life, uh, who, you know, do have social outreach, etc. So, yeah. yeah. And who aren't all anti-gay, you know. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you bringing this convergence. I myself was raised Italian Catholic, went through every realm of Christianity, and like Merton, when he said he went to these places not to learn of, but to drink of, Mm -hmm. well, I drunk so deeply of Christ that I came through the nothingness, everythingness, into the clearing that allows me to sit in a Buddhist Sangha today and meditate and feel at one with everyone here. So I, I believe for myself in between clearing space where all things converge. Thank you. And you, you, you just provoked an interesting, uh, I want to share something. I was for 20 years or whatever an editor of an international, one of the editors anyway, of an international Catholic journal called Concilium. So I was able to go to these interesting meetings with Hans Kung and all those people. And uh, Alois Peris, who I quoted from Sri Lanka, is, is a specialist on uh, Buddhism. He had gone to London and uh, at the University of London got the best kind of doctorate intellectually you could do. But he told the following story, that, and then he went back to Sri Lanka, and he went to an abbot in a Buddhist monastery as a, you know, would bring the flowers and do all that you would do to learn from him. And so he was a, an apprentice for some time in this Buddhist monastery. And then at a certain point, the abbot said to him, um, I can't teach you anymore because uh, for you to move further, you'd have to give up Christ, the church, and everything. And uh, and so Perry's tells the story, and he says, well, but don't Christians themselves say that unless you're willing to die, <laughs> give up everything? So he, he did that. And there was this interesting dialogue between him and Kung, uh, who I don't like personally. I shouldn't say that in a Buddhist group, but I, 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 I don't like him. But Kung, the, the scholar, didn't get it. No. And, uh, and what was interesting was he, somebody who was e- really equally and more a scholar of Buddhism than as the scholar thing was appealing to something different that wasn't just intellectual. Uh, and uh, I was always very moved by that. I was always very moved by that. So, yeah. Oh, yes. 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 Um, I have some old friends who sent their son to a Quaker school, and at his eighth grade graduation, they went and were absolutely astounded that all, you know, K through eight came in, and, you know, five and six year olds sat in complete stillness for an hour. Do you 
What do you believe, or what do you know about the teaching of stillness among the young? Among the Quakers? Yes, yes, I just don't, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, for a good part of my life, I used to go regularly to Quaker meetings, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Walnut Square in Berkeley. Uh, you may know where that is. And when I was in Chicago, uh, I used to go. Uh, I've always admired the Quakers. Uh, it's funny because I'm, I'm a Catholic to my bones, so they're absolutely non-sacramental. There's no Eucharist or whatever. But, they, uh, but however, there's something similar to like Ignatian spirituality. That is, there is the spirit within. There is God is is not just out there, but is active within you. And it, as you know, in a Quaker meeting, you will go and it's an hour long, uh, pretty much silent. The silence c- can be broken in that hour. So you might get up and you would share something. But there's no chit-chat. So it's not like, oh, I heard you and I'm going to... There may be just one person get up. There may be two in the source of an hour. Uh, and it's, it's somehow they've done some kind of discernment that this is you know, something from the Spirit worth sharing. Uh, but the, the, the silence is interesting. And what... What is interesting, of course, there are two kinds of silences, and you would have experienced this here. Um, you know, when I go to pray, I pray alone. I try to be silent. Uh, but there's a different silence when it's collective. And the other thing I've always loved about the Quakers is, you know, well, they're nonviolence. But then they're really consistent concern for the poor you know social justice stuff so I'm a great admirer of Quakers but for somehow it didn't pick up because after all his mother was a Quaker but it didn't pick up with Merton he didn't he didn't get it you know uh, but but I am a great admirer and I for many many years I mean I used to go uh, also went to Eucharist, but I used to go to Quaker meetings. Yes, it's, it's sort of a maybe a difficult question. I've recently become acquainted with the evolutionary psychology perspective and, and Jonathan Haidt on religion and spirituality, and it's, it's been disturbing and it sort of changed everything for me. And one of the things I notice about this is that Merton, as, as you described him, is taking more in and saying there isn't us and them. And yet in your, your personal talk, I hear you distinguishing between good Christians and bad Christians. And I wonder if you would say more about that. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, one has to, you know, judge not that you not, you, that you not be judged. Uh, and, and just this week we've had this thing about the weeds of the wheat and it's God at the end who will determine what's that so that ought to be an admonition to me mm-hmm. on the other hand um, it, 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 it's not simply doctrinal it's by your fruits you will know them and I think that Buddhists might have the same thing. That is, it's 
you know, it's it's after all, it's it's by compassion and bhakti that you show you know, uh, show what's what's what what's true. So someone who is condemning other people and who is condemning all gays or who um, uh, are you know happy to start wars or uh, it's yeah and, and don't really care about the poor it's hard for me to say that we are that we that that I want the same name as they have you know so as many of them would think that I I, I shouldn't be called a Christian but I don't care. I'm a Catholic. It's bigger even than Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it's universal. I mean, it's more universal. So I mean, uh, but you know, I always liked it was a fall ball when he was alive, and, and you know, he started this university, and he said, yeah, "Wouldn't it be great if a Christian university could beat some team like Notre Dame?" See, Notre Dame, <laughs> Notre Dame wasn't included. You know. But, yeah, John. Did Merton say anything, John, about? Uh, I know he died in 1968, but um, I remember I was studying in Rome at the time. Uh, but uh, the fact is that did he ever say anything about gay? Of course, we recognize Stonewall occurred in June. Of no, I don't think he did. I no. don't think he did. I, I, positively or negatively, he uh -huh. was not himself gay. Yes, uh, because, well, that's evident from his history. Though. And then uh, there was this other. When he was a monk, this kind of he, he was chased. There was no he didn't violate his vow, but he fell in love with a nurse who took care of him. Mm -hmm. M we know from some letters, so he was not himself uh, gay. Uh, but I don't think so. I, I, I'm not aware of that. I'm not it was aware. Too early, of it. It's probably too early. Yeah, yeah. And it wouldn't have been in his radar scheme. I don't think he was anti. You know, he wouldn't have been anti homophobic as far as I could tell. But, but uh, so just a quick footnote. Oh yes, uh, yes, yes. Through accidental that's right. The fan fell into that's right. The fan fell into, oh, which was uh, because he had planned. That was uh, in December fifteenth or something. He had planned for uh, to go to Japan and because uh, he had this bigger, you know, Zen thing to go to Korea and Japan. He, he never got there. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he. It was after a talk he gave. This was to monks, monks in Asia, though, who were interested in this. And he, it was hot, it was in Bangkok, so he went back and he got in the shower, and there was some kind of fan that seems to have fallen in and electrocuted him. Some people say the CIA. Well, yeah, they're right. <laughs> well, and some even have speculated, oh, this was suicide, which I find nonsense. No, I, I find nonsense, but... But it was a mysterious death. Right? Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, do we have any announcements today? Um, I'm the host today, and I have made a, an Indian rice pudding. And there is a plum sauce that you can put on. No. Just like my brother. Yes. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, there's also. And if you uh, do have some, then please uh, wash up your cups afterwards. Um, I will be going around um, and just look at the, the, the vulnerable and the suggested donations five to eight dollars to help us by running the space. There's a newcomer sign up sheet 
to the right here, and if you uh, would like to receive our newsletters, then you can uh, put your email address on there. Uh, and finally, uh, some of us gather uh, at about 30 at the end of the uh, social half hour to go out to lunch to a nearby restaurant. So if you would like to do that, um, that's uh, sometimes that's fun to do. And the group will gather right outside uh, or inside the red door to the history uh, at 12 at 1230. Yes. Um, Jim Stewart and I sing in a chorus sounds for Choral Society, and this is not entirely spiritual. It's <laughs> somewhat exotic and um, fun, I hope. Uh, we're performing Carmina Barana and oh. also a relatively new piece, Songs for the Earth by Emmy Redeemer at Davy Symphony Hall on August 17th and 18th. And I put out some flyers on the so our annual fall retreat, uh, the fourth weekend in September, is nearly full. There are uh, five or fewer slots left. Um, so if that's of interest, act now. <laughs> and, and how do you act? Uh, there are, uh, we have brochures out on the, I, I presume they're out there. Is there, uh, is there and a list? There's a registration form in there that needs to be mailed in. Mail it yeah, there's no, we have no big online shopping cart. So. You can't download the form, though, from you the website. The, yeah. yeah, the form, the same brochure is actually okay. on our website, or you can pick up one here. So. How much does it cost? One it's sliding scale, one sixty to two hundred dollars. Hi, today's, today's newsletter, um, Dan, most of you have probably heard my spiel on it, but for those who don't know, we have now over 400 paper email um, newsletters which will go out, about two-thirds of those go to prisons. So we have every other month our sort of equivalent of a quilting day, our newsletter mailing the afterward today. So if eight or ten people can help on that for commitment, please. That would be great. So along those lines, too, um, I don't know if we discussed actually doing it, but if you're receiving it by mail, postage, and all this stuff, and yet you're coming here and can actually pick it up, we'd like to find a way to, uh, if you're open to it, take you off the list. So think about that. Or how about opting it to get it electronic? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, when, it, when it's available, we announce it on the list, and you can just go in and download it or look at it or whatever. So uh, think about that if you might want to be willing to opt out, and we'll find a way to do that. I don't know who can talk to you about that. Do you? Um, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can take down names. And, yeah. Anything else? Does anyone know who's speaking next week or what's happening? I can't remember. <laughs> I'll grab the newsletter. Well, it's not. No, no, it's not. Here. It's not. It's we, 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 it's this is our last speaker of the newsletter month. But the new newsletter would have this. It's under the desk in the cardboard box.
And the speaker I can't remember has truly embraced nothingness. That was Jim Stewart. Yeah, Bill Scheinman, um, author of the book Moment by Moment, Using Mindfulness to Reduce Stress and Cultivate Freedom in Daily Life. power and truth of this practice, by the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.